I am one of the servants here at New Life Prez. Uh, it's a joy to see you all, to worship with you all here today. We are actually in our third week of our missions month where, where we'll be taking a look at Jonah 3 as we are reminded of the Great Commission, one of our most fundamental responsibilities as a Christian and as a church. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the entire ch chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. And as I do so, let's be reminded that this is God's uh, holy, his infallible, his inerrant word. And I pray that you be blessed uh, by Jonah chapter 3. So let me read that for us, starting with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a, long, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Please take your seats at this time. <clears throat> well, we're in the third chapter of the book of Jonah, and it's been quite a, a journey to consider this sort of uh, ironically uh, ordinary man that God will use and one of the themes of the book of Jonah is to consider and to recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the way that God likes to help and heal and serve people, to save people, is that he wants to save one and then use the one to save the many. So he'll save and restore Jonah, and then he'll use Jonah to save the many. Now, if I had to summarize this journey, this sort of adventure, and by the way, Jonah is a form of Hebrew poetry. It is satirical in nature. It's showing the human plight. You and I can recognize ourselves in Jonah. But if I had to summarize the book of Jonah thus far, I would say it this way. In chapter 1, we see Jonah's flight. In chapter 2, we see Jonah's plight. And in chapter 3, we'll see Jonah's fight. In other words, we'll see that Jonah was selfish in chapter 1. God was gracious in chapter 2, and now Jonah in chapter 3 will be empowered to proclaim God's word to save the Ninevites. But I'm going to consider with you here this morning two simple points that I pray that we could see the importance on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Missions Month, the importance of Jonah and how God uses him to lead to the repentance of Nineveh. So two simple points. One, we'll consider here together the restoration of Jonah. Secondly, we'll look at this great repentance of the city of Nineveh. 
the capital of Assyria, one of the most evil and hostile nations, one of the most secular nations that we know about in the Bible. We'll look at their repentance. So let's look at this together. It's a wonderful passage. The author of the book of Jonah is a poet. They often say, as I heard once, that poetry gives a clear expression to mixed emotions. And so let's look at the restoration of Jonah. One commentator notes right off the back in the beginning of chapter 3 that chapter 3 rewinds the plot and he begins again. Well, let me try to make my case here. I'm going to compare the first three verses of chapter 1 to the first three verses of chapter 3. And this is where we see a comparison in which in chapter 3, the plot rewinds back into the beginning. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it repeats again, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And then in verse 2, chapter 1, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh, the same command. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh, the same command. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1, which shows us the biggest difference, in chapter 1, it says, but Jonah, he ran away. But in chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed. The plot rewinds and begins again. The same word came to Jonah, the same command came to Jonah, but the response to Jonah has been different. What's the point of this? Well, there's so much to say, but I want to just mention this. If you're skeptical about Christianity, if you're learning about what this Jesus person is, one of the beautiful realities that I think is distinct to Christianity is that the God of Christianity is a God of second chances. That's why it says it right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He's a God of second chances. And that should be such a comforting reality in the restoration of Jonah for you and me. Because it means this. Whenever you fail, whenever you run away, whenever you sin, God will always take you back. He's always pursuing you. He's always reaching out to you. You're never such a failure. You're never such a sinner in which God's grace does not actively pursue you, in which the word of God, maybe even here today, comes to you a second time. He's a God of second chances. And in fact, the beautiful story about Christianity is that God actually chooses and uses runaways like you and me, failures like you and me, to accomplish his great plan. What's so encouraging is that God uses Jonah a second time to save, or at least to attempt to save, the city of Nineveh. You know what the beautiful thing is about this is that when you look at this passage about the restoration of Jonah, God doesn't just restore Jonah into personal faith and relationship. God restores Jonah back to public usefulness, not just to personal faithfulness, but to public usefulness. Because it's one thing to say with somebody, okay, we're good, but in your heart of hearts you're saying, I'm never going to be friends with you again. I'm never going to want to partner with you again. I'm never going to do anything with you again, but we're fine. We'll be at peace. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it goes much deeper because it shows in the restoration of Jonah that there's not just the restoration of personal faithfulness, but public usefulness. This means that sometimes the way that God prepares us is by breaking us, not to make us defeated, but to make us dependent. 
Jonah needed to be broken and melted, molded. He needed to be opened up again so that he could be filled with the love of God and empowered to proclaim the salvation that comes in Jesus alone. Before he used any use of God, to God, he had to experience the very grace and forgiveness himself. I mean, just put yourself for a moment into Jonah's shoes. In chapter 1, you're a regular old dude. God comes to you and says, you know the harshest, most evil city in Nineveh? I want you and you alone to go there and proclaim a harsh message to the most evil and hostile city, at least known in the land. I mean, if you read the history books, Assyrians were pretty brutal. What would you do? You think, well, Jonah seems so cowardly and weak. You know, I thought maybe it's just me. I'm pretty sure I would run away too. And I'll go and hide. And imagine the journey that we saw last week. He runs away. He meets a bunch of sailors on a boat. They throw him over. He gets swallowed up by a fish. I guess we could say it's a whale. And then he survives this fish for three days. And then he explodes out of the fish. What kind of transformation, what kind of brokenness, what kind of salvation on a local level is that that would move you to be like Jonah. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. If you understand Jonah's experience, then the word of the Lord came a second time, and he says, okay, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim the message of the gospel. I mean, I, th I think if I was Jonah, I would have done maybe the same exact thing of running away, being selfish, but it's that experience to say, God, you got to be crazy. There's no, way I'm going to There's no way I'm going to Nineveh. I'm taking my bags. I'm running away. I'm going to try to outrun you, never to be in your sight again, but God is everywhere, and he calls him back. And I think it was that experience to say, I was in that belly of the fish. I thought I was going to die. By some providential, miraculous feat, I'm standing here today, and the word of the Lord came a second time. If God restores you, oftentimes, he breaks you, molds you, melts you. He opens you up inside out, not to make you defeated, but to make you dependent. In other words, Jonah himself had to experience the delivery from the belly of the fish before he could proclaim the delivery from the belly of sin. He became like what I pray you and I could become like. He was like a sponge, someone who soaked in the water of God's compassion so that when life and suffering pressures him, what comes out is going to be God's compassion. And we see this in the way that Jonah's attitude has changed, don't we? Well, if you look at, once again, I'm going to elaborate a little bit about this. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says they're call out against it for their evil. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, it changes a little bit and it says, call out against it with a message. In other words, the first time God says, call out their evil. Call them out on that. Be brave, be strong, call out their sin, their evil. But the second time in verse 2, it says, call out against it, but it doesn't say against evil. It says with a message. With a message. See, that's one of the things that I think Christians in the church can learn about when we consider evangelism and missions. Some of you just have a message of condemnation. You go out to the world, you just want to condemn people. You want to judge them. You're all about the law, but never about grace. You have a condemnation. You have a 
you, have a, you feel like you have a justification to bring in harsh words, to criticize people, but there's no love, there's no compassion here because it shows us in the second chances of Jonah, don't just call them out for their evil, but now go with the message. We're called not to go out with condemnation, but to go out with a message. The message of grace, the message of truth, the message of love, the message of the cross. And that encompasses, yeah, a true desire for holiness, a law of God, a turning from our evil ways, but we don't go out with a message of condemnation. We go out with a message of grace, truth, and love. Almost as if Jonah was called to go out first with just condemnation, ridicule, a prideful criticism, but after he experienced the deliverance and the restoration from the belly of the fish, and the word of the Lord came to him a second time, equips him with grace, love, truth, with a message. Practically, this means, friends, I'm sure every one of you has one person in your neighborhood, at your kid's school, at your college, in the workplace. You bump into a Starbucks or a Phil's Coffee. There's going to be someone that you'll run into who may not know who Jesus is, and you may not agree with their lifestyle, and you may not agree, agree with the way they think about this world, but the goal is to say, the word of the Lord came to you a second time. You don't have a message of condemnation. You have a message of reconciliation. A couple of weeks ago, I was eating uh, dinner at BJ's over in Brea, and uh, the waiter came by. I took our order. We ordered kind of weird food, I guess. It was like me and this other guy. Uh, it wasn't just pizzas and drinks. It was just kind of appetizers, and we asked about dessert, and you know, there's a birthday, so it was like two guys celebrating a birthday together. It looked a little bit odd. So I just wanted to kind of correct any misperceived conception about this. I was like, hey, what do you think we do if we're living? And then the, the waitress, she was like, ah, you know, you guys are Asian, <laughs> maybe IT, <laughs> math teacher. <laughs> but you guys seem kind of like, you know, educated. And I was like, I'm actually a pastor. And then she had this weird perplexed look. And I said, yeah, I have a lot of brokenness in my life. <laughs> but I, were, I serve at a church called New Life Presbyterian. We're in Fullerton, gave her the business card. And she looked at it and said, I used to go to church. And this is her story to share, so I'm a little bit careful. Even though she's a stranger, this is her story, so I can't share this, but I guess I'll just share at least this. I used to go to church. My dad used to be a pastor, but now they're divorced. I don't have much of a relationship with him. I always thought about coming to church. Now, you can think about this and say, you need to talk to your dad. What kind of daughter were you? But that's the message of condemnation. We have a message of reconciliation. And when she says, I tell her, well, my friend and I, we're no better than you. You know, if you want a place just to meet friends and to hear this message of the gospel, stop by sometime. We'd love to worship with you. That is a call that we all have. And you can only have that to the degree that you experience this restoration like Jonah did from the belly of the fish. This leads us to our second point. The repentance of Nineveh. Did you know, in fact, that in the Jewish liturgical calendar, the book of Jonah was read at the climactic point of what they call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? And the reason the book of Jonah was read on the climax of Yom Kippur was because it was the book's emphasis on God's forgiveness for those who repent. God's repentance or our repentance and God's forgiveness. Let's look at this in verses 4 to 5. It says right there, Jonah began to go into the city, 
going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed. There is faith there. They called for a fast and put on a sackcloth, which is a deep repentance and sorrow, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So we know that here there's a repentance of Nineveh because they believed God, but they also had fasting and put on a sackcloth. So there is repentance there. They fasted, they put on a sackcloth, the deepest expressions of Jewish sorrow as well as repentance. But friends, here's one thing to note. It shows us there at the end of verse 5, from the greatest of them to the least, they all repented. It tells us every one of you, as sinful and as much of a failure, as much of a low self-esteem that you think you have, you still need grace and forgiveness. And as accomplished and intelligent and as powerful as you think you are, you need repentance. From the greatest of them to the least of them, everyone needed repentance. Let me try to stretch this application a little bit. It also means for you, the greatest of things that you've done, you may need repentance. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Because oftentimes, well, we know the least of the things that we've done, the sins in our closet, the skeletons in our closet, the things that we think, our heart motives. We have a lot of sins that we committed. We surely know if you've grown up in the church, God, please forgive me of this. But one thing that we recognize here is that you don't just have to repent of the bad things that you've done. Sometimes you've got to repent of the good things that you've done. Well, what does that mean? If you find your identity and your sense of worth, on your accomplishments and the good things that you've done, the Bible also says that's sin. That's your functional savior. That's what you look to to give you identity, value more than Jesus Christ. In other words, if you look and love anything more than Jesus and find your life and you build your life on anything more than Jesus, the great things that you've done, the Bible says you also have to repent. That's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes have to repent, but that's why also the Pharisees and the Sadducees also have to repent. That's why you and I repent not just of the bad things that we've done, the least of these things, but we also repent of the greatest of these things. That's why Christianity is mind-blowing. It's not about how much good and bad that you do on this ideological spectrum. It's really about what Jesus has done for you to transform you so you repent of the greatest things and the least of things. Everyone needs repentance. So I want to share a few words about repentance, crystal clear, practical repentance that you can apply when you go home today. Repentance, friends, is not just sorrow. The essence of repentance, do you know what it is? It's a U-turn. It's a K-turn, a three-point turn, whatever you may call it. That's what repentance is. It's not just sorrow for your sin, but as Pastor Paul has said, it's a turning to something greater. The essence of sin, both in the Old Testament and the New, the word there means to turn. Look at with me the Hebrew word for turn in verses 8 to 10. I'm going to read those verses. The word for repentance, turn, is there four times. <clears throat> but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn. From his evil, from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Repentance, friends, is a turning. It's not just hatred of sin, but a love of the Savior. You need both. You need to hate your sin, and you need to love Jesus. It means that you need to know two things really deeply. By the word of God, 
you see the essence of your sin, and by the word of God, you see the beauty, the majesty of Jesus who loves you and covers you and shed his blood for you. If you only know one, you'll never have repentance. Because if you only think of your sin, you'll become bitter, depressed, you'll begin to fracture and implode, you'll be an unpleasant person to be around because you're just down on yourself and critical against other people because you just look at your sin. On the other hand, if you just look at your Savior and don't look at your sin, then you'll never grow. You'll never have an honest reality about yourself. You'll never be humbled because you think everything's always perfect. You can't just look at Jesus and say, I'm always forgiven and perfect and never pursue holiness. And you can't just look at your sin because you'll never have power to grow in holiness because you're just going to be depressed, critical, low self-esteem. You need both. You need to turn. You can't just know the Savior without sin. You can't just look at your sin without savoring and loving and worshiping the Savior. Now, the best illustration I could use for this comes from an Old Testament professor by the name of Benjamin Shaw. And he's talking about repentance. I think he was preaching on Psalm chapter 51. And he says the essence of repentance is going to be a turning around. And some of the turning around that you and I have to do is going to take different efforts, different strength, different time. Now, some sins of yours are pretty light, but you still got to turn from them. And it's like walking down a sidewalk, and then you just turn. It's easy. Some of your sins are like that. Others of yours, others of you, some of your sins are a little bit deeper, lived with you a little bit longer, a little bit ingrained in you. So it's more like a U-turn or a three-point turn on a narrow street in a neighborhood. Now, I know not everyone drives, but when you do a three-point turn or a U-turn, you know, you got to put some effort in. Check the traffic. You turn left, pull over to the side, and then put the car in reverse, turn the steering wheel the other way, and then you come back this way, put the car in drive, and you turn it back. So it takes a little bit more effort. Some of your sins are like that when you turn. you got to look a little bit harder to your sin, look a little bit deeper to Jesus. But some of your sins... And everyone's probably like this, including me, are so deep. They, they've, they've affected you so, so much in your identity that it's like turning a ginormous ocean liner on the Atlantic to turn it around. That's going to take some time. Sometimes that's going to be a lifelong effort. So sometimes you walk and you just kind of turn. Others of you, you just kind of do the three-point turn. Some of you, maybe all of us, have sins that we got to turn that ocean liner in our lives to look away from these deep sins and turn to Jesus Christ. That's what Jonah has done in turning, and that's what the Ninevites have done to turn from their evil ways. An anonymous Wheaton College student said this about the conflict we see in Jonah. He says the main conflict of the story is that Jonah is a great nationalist, but God is an internationalist. He's going to cause Jonah to turn in his life so that he could be used to cause the Ninevites to turn from their evil way. So if you take a look and read different parts of the Bible and the history books, one of the things about repentance is not just turning, but turning specifically. What was the evil that the Ninevites committed? Well, you can read the history books. They were brutal. They're about power. You could summarize their sins in two ways. Religiously, they were compromisers. So that's what they call syncretism. You take a little bit of a blend of every religion so that you could 
make everyone happy means more money for your government, for your kingdom. So there are syncretists, religious compromisers, but you can only worship the true God. The second thing was that they were just oppressors. They love power and they money and money, and they oppress the poor, they oppress the underprivileged, they oppress the minorities, and so you had a level of justice. So that was, in essence, the evil of the Ninevites. You can read about the specifics of this as recorded in the prophet Nahum in chapter 3, verse 1. They're referencing the Ninevites, and this is what he says. Woe to the bloody city. They're murderous, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. So they're bloody. They were about murder. They're about power. They're full of lies and deceit and deception. And they're about plunder, which means they wanted to take people's possessions. It was specifics. You know what the point I'm trying to make is that when you repent, you got to be specific. You got to be specific. Specificity in repentance is an indication of maturity in repentance. I first heard this illustration sort of tweaking it in my own life experience, but I heard this illustration by a guy by the name of H.B. Charles. But I remember, and maybe this is just me, the first time that I ever did laundry for myself was my freshman year in college in, I think, 1995. The first time I ever did laundry. Now, I don't know if this was you or me. I didn't know you had to separate out the whites from the dark. I didn't realize the different materials of your laundry actually made a difference and you had to use different cycles. I would take my laundry, it would be a big ball of dirty laundry, and I would just throw it into the washing machine and I would just turn it on and I'll take it out and I put it into the dryer. If you ever done that, you realize that it comes out a little bit clean, but not that clean. Well, why? Because when you do your laundry to make it clean, you gotta separate things out. You got to take your dirty t-shirt and you take your dirty socks and you take the shorts and pants that were stained and you got to separate it out and it makes more sense that you take the lights from the darks and you do two separate loads. I learned that later, maybe in my sophomore year, but because I was lazy, I still did the dirty ball of laundry and I just put it all in one because it was quicker and you save a lot of money. The point is this, sometimes in your repentance, I like to call that you and I repent of our sins in the ball of laundry approach to repentance. Nothing specific. You just want to repent all at the same time because it's efficient and real lazy. So we pray things like this, God, forgive me of all my sins. And if you're really big with this, forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. That you never have to repent again. But that's not what it is. When you look at Psalm 51, when you look at biblical repentance, maturity in repentance shows in specificity. And it's not an easy experience. You don't want to look at the specific sins that you committed. God, forgive me for what I looked on the internet last night. God, please forgive me because I was jealous of this person in my church and I thought this, I said this to this person. God, forgive me for getting angry because I was selfish as a father against my children. Children, forgive me because I know for this specific instance and this specific circumstance, my mom and dad told me don't do this, but I lied and I cheated and I disobeyed and I hid it all up. And that's just scratching the surface. If somebody could actually look in my heart, in my mind, to see the specific sins that we committed, man, that's some dirty laundry. Each sin, like an article of clothing, you got to put into the washing machine, 
of Jesus' blood for you. That's what comes out in repentance. Jonah was a nationalist, but he was called to proclaim the gospel to the Assyrian capital, the Gentile world, the evil nation. And in this small satirical work of art, the book of Jonah is the Great Commission in Old Testament form. God saved the one to save the many. And he fulfilled this Great Commission in Jesus Christ, who said, Disciple the nations to the end of the world. so that we can cause people to turn away from their evil ways and turn to Jesus. We see, the, we see this throughout the entire Bible. Most of salvation was focused on Israel in the Old Testament, and then you come to the book of Acts, and then missions begins in the city of Jerusalem, but then ends in the city of Rome, the, the Jewish capital of the world to the secular capital of the world. That's what we see in the story of the Bible, and that's why we're here today. Missions moves from Assyria, Ninevites, to the Rome, Romans, to Fullerton, you and I here today, to the Philippines with James and Shine. The same commandment, go to Nineveh, still is the same commandment to you and me. We have to go. Now, not everyone's going to be a Jonah. Not everyone's going to be an Abraham. Not everyone's going to be a missionary like James and Shine to go because you're not gifted, you're not called to do that, but everyone, broadly speaking, is to go. Like Tim Keller once said, you may not be called to go geographically, but you're called to go out of your comfort, go out of your security, go out of your natural resources. So you may go in prayer, you may go in finances, you may go in service and hospitality, but everyone is called to go to get out of your comfort zone. If you follow Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ tells us to go, and the very power in which we're able and empowered to go is precisely because Jesus already came. The reason that we could send out people is because Jesus was already sent. Jesus was the great and better Jonah who was sent not just to save the many of the Ninevites, but to save the people of the world. So friends, I want you to consider, how are you going what is your way to go? Now, I'll give you a hint. There's going to be a table out there to learn about missions and how God is moving in the Philippines. I want to encourage you, if you have the time, to go to that table. Learn a little bit about what God is doing and how God will use James and Shine. Maybe even pray about how you're going to support them, both financially and in prayer. Go to the table. It's only five feet <laughs> That's a pretty easy trip. Jesus came from heaven to hell to earth back to heaven. We can consider how we go because Jesus was already sent and he already came. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your son. We thank you, Lord, that we have received the sent one in Jesus Christ, and we have been empowered as a church and given the great commission because of our great Lord to turn to you and to go to you, to receive forgiveness, to turn from our evil ways and be empowered to be sent. Help us to be a truly sent and sending church. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, we have some